Well, whether you're joining us from Elliott Hall or here in the sanctuary or online from wherever you are, uh, such a gift to celebrate this Resurrection Sunday with you. Um, special welcome if this is your first time here in this church. Uh, maybe you're visiting family and you're in from out of town or your significant other dragged you to church on Easter. I know this to be true for some of you because some of you have said to me, Pastor, I'm bringing so-and-so to church on Easter which is code language for, so don't blow it, preacher. (laughs) We started this morning with those sacred words that are really the anthem of Easter, and they've been passed down from century to century, from generation to generation, that Easter litany, he is risen indeed. One Easter morning, a a dad walked down into the kitchen, and he said, boy, am I hungry. And his six-year-old son looked up from where he was sitting at the kitchen counter. He said, I am hungry indeed. His dad said, are you making fun of what we say in church? He said, no, daddy, but our Sunday school teacher said, anytime you really feel something, you just got to say, indeed. (laughs) We are indeed honored that you are here with us today as we celebrate that death is defeated, sins are forgiven, hope wins, hell loses because Christ is risen indeed. But see, before we jump into the joy and the hope of that resurrection promise, we gotta deal first with another emotion that's really front and center in that Easter story that was read for us earlier. We're told by the gospel writer Mark that these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, these three women went to the tomb very early on the first day of the week. Now that's one of those details that we tend to sort of skip over very early, or dark 30, as grandpa used to say. Mark drops this little detail for us, though, in his telling of the resurrection. And you're like, well, thank you so much, Mark, for letting us know that the Marys and Salome were morning people, early risers, go-getters, you know, fully caffeinated, ready to start their day, like everybody who's already been to the sunrise service or the 8 o'clock. I mean, is that what this is all about? No. They're headed to the tomb very early at daybreak because they're afraid they might get caught. They're afraid that someone might see them going to anoint the body of a condemned criminal because that's what Jesus was. He was convicted of inciting rebellion, an insurrectionist. And these women were justifiably afraid of somehow being associated or connected to that. But see, if you keep peeling back the layers of this story, it's a story loaded with fear, beginning with the fear that always surrounds death. The death of someone they love, someone they'd pledged their lives to, and now he's six feet under. Then second, there's suffering and the fear that surrounds suffering. Mark tells us they were bringing with them these spices to anoint Jesus' body. So they're not just going to the columbarium, you know, to pay their respects, to pray. No, this was a sacred Jewish ritual where they would uh, very meaningfully unwrap the burial linens around his corpse a body that no doubt bore the scars of, of, and the reminders of all the torture and the crucifixion and how much he had suffered. That's what they're expecting to find. Death, suffering, and then third, what about the failure? Right? These women expected to find failure in that tomb. Just days earlier, they had witnessed as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was heralded as a king, and now he's in a grave, which means their hopes had failed. He had failed. Even their followers, or his followers, were, were running away when he needed them most. Uh, everyone, by the way, except for the women. Death, suffering, 
failure. And fourth, they certainly would have expected to find shame. Crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. It was reserved for slaves and the worst of those death row criminals. Think about that, to be put on display as an example as you breathe your last. And here was their friend, the one whom they thought was their savior, their king, the one who would make everything right, and now he's crucified in shame. Death, suffering, failure, shame, all these fears they expected to find in that graveyard. And are these not some of our deepest fears as well? Beginning, of course, with death. That's an easy one. No one likes to think about death, talk about death, acknowledge death, because we're all afraid of it. There was a recent article in the New York Times that talked about the booming popularity of cryogenics. Anybody heard about this? Really weird. It's where they freeze your body when you die so that just in the event that something gets invented, like 100 years later, and they can revive you and bring you back to life, like you're going to be able to keep on living. And people will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for this, which seems kind of steep for me, right? I mean, Han Solo didn't pay a dime, and, and they froze him. But that's our culture. We're afraid of death. Well, then there's suffering, and we will do anything to avoid pain. You see this all over the place. We spend so much time trying to avoid pain through through alcohol, addictions, entertainment, buying more stuff, racking up more achievements, anything to dull the pain because we're afraid of suffering. Or maybe it's the fear surrounding an illness or about with cancer or someone you love and you're watching as they're not getting better. Then what about failure? So many of you... If you're anything like me, what drives you to try and succeed in life is this constant fear of failing. We're afraid we're going to fail others, fail ourselves, people's expectations of us. We're afraid we'll be a failure in God's eyes. Death, suffering, failure, and then shame. Shame is an underrated emotion. Last week, I was uh, flying somewhere with Allie, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but one of the things they tell you to do when you're, when you're traveling by air um, is to drink a lot of water, because you can get hy- dehydrated when you're flying. And so I drank like two Nalgene's full of water that morning before our flight, just to be on the safe side here, plus the venti Starbucks I drank at the airport. So we board the plane, and a half an hour in, I got to go, like now. But we just took off, and the seatbelt sign is still on, and they're pretty serious about that stuff these days. So I'm just sitting there sweating, because I'm fully hydrated, but I need, I need a restroom. Well, finally, the captain comes on, and he talks for like six minutes, because that's sometimes what they do. He was in a loquacious mood that day. Um, at the end, he turns off the seatbelt sign, and before the bong, I am already up and out of my seat, ready to go. Of course, what always happens the moment you have to go to the restroom on an airplane the drink carts come out for 45 minutes, and, and the drink cart is between me and the restroom in the back of the plane. Well, I'm not going to last that long, and so finally, I decide that I'm going to make a run for it. I know that I'm not allowed to or supposed to, but this was bladder crisis moment at this point, so instead of waiting for the drink cart to go by, I decided to walk forward through the curtain. You know... The curtain that separates all of us in coach from the Holy of Holies, <laughs> first class. I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm desperate. So I get up and I try to play it cool, like I know what I'm doing and that I belong in 2A. Well, as soon as I step through that curtain, it's a true story, the flight attendant, she steps right in front of me and she says loud enough for everybody in first class to hear, oh, no, sir, you cannot do that. 
And she goes on to tell me, you've heard this before, that we are required by law, federal law at that, to use the restroom in your class of service. And everybody in first class is kind of nodding along, uh, listening to her, looking at me like busted. Don't be stealing our lavender-infused towelettes. No, no, no. (laughs) So then I had to make the long walk of shame back to my seat in the middle of the plane. Shame is a powerful emotion. I will never cross the Holy of Holies again. So often I'm controlled by shame, a fear of what people might think, by embarrassment. We live in the fear that someday people are going to see us for who we really are, and they ain't going to like it. We're ashamed of our past, mistakes we've made, regrets, the shame of a relationship that that went bad, a divorce, an addiction you're hiding from those you love. Death, suffering, failure, shame, four of our biggest fears So here's kind of the Easter question for every one of us today. When these three women came to that tomb on that first Easter morning, what did they find? They were expecting to find all this fear, but what did they find inside that tomb? Nothing. An angel says to them, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. What do they see? Nothing. No death, no suffering, no failure, no shame. The tomb was empty. The resurrection of Jesus conquered our deepest fears, and that's good news for you and me. And by the way, it isn't good news unless it's really true. Maybe some of you walked into this place today with with your share of questions, and, and if you're being totally honest, you're kind of skeptical that Easter is anything more than this sentimental story we keep telling ourselves. Maybe one of the reasons you're not so sure about this is you've kind of been turned off over the years by the church or by the things that church people sometimes say. That's why next week we're starting a new series called, Did God Really Say That? Things that we think are in the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible. And so if you've ever listened in on a conversation and you heard someone say, well, you know what it says in the good book, cleanliness is next to godliness, so you better clean up your life or... You know, when someone says, well, when, as it says in the Bible, when God closes one door, he, what? Opens another. Obviously, you've heard that before, which, just to be clear, none of those things are actually in the Bible. So we'd love for you to join us as we look to gain clarity about what the scriptures, what God really has to say about life with him and how we navigate struggles together. Maybe you're here and you've got lots of questions, not quite sure what it is you believe, And let me just say this, if you're still trying to figure this out, I'm so glad you're here and we want this to be a place where people can ask questions and lean into their doubts. Alpha is an amazing next step for you. There have been times in my life when I wondered whether any of this was really true. And I'm so grateful that the church made room for my doubts. And just just to let you know, there's a little section in your worship guide where I've shared some of the reasons that, that, that... I have growing confidence in the resurrection as an historically true event. I encourage you to read through that, not right now, like during the sermon, but maybe later at brunch at Sizzler or wherever you could get a reservation. Real quick, one of the uh, most compelling pieces of evidence for me is that women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Okay, in the first century, if you committed a crime and 100 women saw you do it and there was not a man there, you would go free. 
Uh, given, because women, given their low social status, they were considered incapable of being reliable witnesses. If you were making this story up, there is no way you would put women there first, which all four gospel writers do. And one of these women, we're told, was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, whose ministry-safe background check would always get rejected because of her checkered past, possessed by demons. That'll get you flagged every time. Okay, point being, this was about the least likely candidate in the entire New Testament to be the first witness of the empty tomb. Best possible explanation for why women, why Mary was described as finding the empty tomb is that's how it happened and they couldn't bring themselves to alter the true story. So this isn't just good news, it's true news. And if it's true, then we have nothing to fear. All their fears were defeated. Not that they no longer exist, but what the empty tomb announces is that fear does not have the last word. Those fears do not have any power over us because God has shown us that he will use them all for good. The empty tomb shows us that God, God defeated death by raising Jesus out from the dead and he's gonna do the same thing for us. Easter shows us that God has defeated suffering because Jesus absorbed the worst suffering that pain has to offer on our behalf. And we know that when we suffer, he is our comforter and he is our help. In the empty tomb, we see that God took what looked like ultimate failure, ultimate shame, his own son dying on a wooden cross, and God transformed that into victory so that we are forgiven and we will live forever as sons and daughters of the living king. Therefore, there is nothing to fear because the tomb is empty. This is where you're supposed to say amen. amen. Fear does not get the last word. Now, some of you are like, wait a second. That's not what I heard when that passage was read earlier in our service. In fact, uh, when Emily got to the end of the passage and she said, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, I was like, no, this is not yet done. There's more, you're missing some parts of the scripture here. It must, you must be wrong. Like, there must be more to the story. Look again at verse 8. The last words of the Gospel of Mark trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of gospel. So isn't fear like the actual last word? Now, some of you who brought your own Bible and, you know, you were reading along or you opened up the Pew Bible and when we got to the end of verse 8, you're like, hold on, my Bible seems to keep going. What about verses 9 through 20? Here's the bonus part of the Easter sermon. They didn't get this at the sunrise. If you have a newish Bible, almost every modern translation does this. Verses 9 through 20 are in italics or there's a bold heading before it saying the earliest manuscripts end at verse 8. Most scholars think the original authentic ending of Mark's gospel was verse 8, not verses 9 through 20, and I'll try to show you why. Ever watched a movie or binged a TV series, and you got to the end of the series or the movie, and you're like, what? That can't be the end. Like, that's the worst ending ever. I just wasted a week of my life watching Seinfeld. That's not how it's supposed to end. It's an ending where you're just going, I don't understand. One of my favorite examples of this is actually the classic movie Princess Bride. And it's when the, gran the grandpa, Columbo, you know, he's reading to his grandson and, and he reads through this story, The Princess Bride, and then suddenly he stops reading the story like before the last page and paragraph of the book and he closes the book and his grandson, Fred Savage, is like, wait a second, Grandpa, that cannot be the end of the story. 
And Columbo says, well, I thought you didn't like any of that kissy stuff. And young Fred Savage says, well, maybe I like some of the kissy stuff after all. And so Grandpa opens the book back up and he reads the last paragraph. And if you remember this, it's a classic line. Since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses rated the most passionate. This one left them all behind. And we're all like, yes. (laughs) That's how the story is supposed to end. Well, it's kind of that way with Mark's gospel. And so because of that, this longing for things to get resolved, later manuscript writers, because there weren't any printing presses or digital versions, you had, if you wanted a Bible, you had to copy it down by hand. And so Christians along the way were reading through the end of Mark, and they're like, this shouldn't be the ending. It's not supposed to end in fear, so I'm going to add a better ending. And a bunch of copiers did that. Right? That's what you have with verses 9 through 20. Does this make sense? Later Christians were trying to resolve the tension that was left in Mark's original ending. And so the question remains, how could Mark's Easter story end in fear? Like the last word is literally fear. They were afraid. I'll tell you why I love this ending. Part of it is, it is so real. Like it doesn't try to airbrush the reality of life or try to resolve the the reality of all these fears that we face. That just because Jesus conquered death doesn't mean that our lives are suddenly void of anything we could ever be afraid of. I mean, think about all we've been through together these last two years. Global pandemic, so many lives lost, racial tensions, families and friends torn apart by so much hate and divisiveness, now this senseless war in Ukraine. That's not to mention the ongoing struggles with sickness, loneliness, despair, And see, Mark's gospel doesn't gloss over that. But I think that even more than that, the reason that I'm drawn to this ending, it's as if for Mark, the real ending to this gospel story is what we do in response to the empty tomb. It's almost like Mark and the Spirit of God through Mark is saying to the first listeners of his story, of this gospel, and all the way through history and through the centuries to those of us listening to it today, Mark says, I know how the story ends. I've seen it in the courage and the faith of those three women who overcame all that fear and they would go on and they would tell the story of the empty tomb and they would become pillars of this growing movement of Jesus followers and they would risk everything because they had encountered the risen Christ. They would leave everything behind. Some of them would lose their families. Many of them would lose their lives because what seemed like silence was actually the start of a revolution. And I'll close with this. In 2004, during the elections in Ukraine, there was a reformer by the name of Viktor Yushchenko who challenged the establishment party. And as some of you might remember, He was actually poisoned at one point, and he nearly died, but he survived. Well, on election day, all of the exit polls showed that Yushchenko had a huge lead, that he was going to win by a landslide. But through blatant fraud, the government in power actually reversed the results. And that evening, the state-run TV network in Ukraine began reporting on the elections, and they reported that Yushchenko had lost. But there was one thing they didn't take into account. True story. In the lower right-hand corner of the TV screen, as you were watching the state-run TV network, there was this brave woman who was doing sign language of the news. And during the broadcast, she started to sign, as they were talking about how Yushchenko had lost, she started to sign, 
don't believe them. They're lying. Yushchenko is our true president. No one in the studio knew what was going on. They didn't understand her sign language. They just assumed that she was doing what she does, following the script, following along. But deaf people all over Ukraine started texting their friends, and their friends started texting their friends, and and other journalists started hearing about it and got courageous, and pretty soon a million people ended up flooding the streets, and the government finally caved in, and Yushchenko became their president. What seemed like silence was actually the start of a revolution. Okay, that's Easter. That's Easter. Between Friday and Sunday, something happened that caused this band of defeated quitters who ran in fear when Jesus was arrested and killed. Something happened in that empty tomb that these three women and later on those washed out disciples would launch a movement that would change history. People overcome with fear were somehow changed almost overnight into women and men of unthinkable courage. Because the tomb was empty, they could stare at death, what once sent them running, and they would live with such boldness, such power, such hope, such resolve. And they left trembling and fear behind, and they started running with joy to share this good news. And the world has never been the same, because they knew the one who said, I love you, and I'm calling you, and I'll fight for you. And even when you turn your back on me, I'm going to come back for you, and I will overcome whatever it takes, even death, even the grave, to win you back to me. So how about you? Maybe you're here today, and some of you might be ready to say, fear doesn't have to have the last word in my life anymore. I want the risen Jesus, his forgiveness, and his love to be the beginning and the end of my story. And I know we don't do this very often because we're the frozen, chosen Presbyterians, but sometimes there is just power in acknowledging when God stirs inside of us and when he changes us. And I wonder if for some of you, when you think back over the last year or the last couple of years, something happened, something changed, and Jesus became the center of your story. His love, his forgiveness, his grace, his presence became more real to you than it ever has been before. Maybe you're a confirmation student, or maybe you grew up in the church, or you were baptized way back when, but it's like something happened in this season of life that after a time of kind of keeping God at a distance, Jesus has become a part of your story. And if that's true for you, whether it's something that's happening for the first time this morning as it has at the sunrise service and with baptisms and at the eight o'clock, for the first time, or maybe, maybe you just feel like something has changed in my life in recent days or months or years because of Jesus, and honestly, what I need is an anniversary. Like on Easter Sunday, I will never forget. I will always remember. That was the day when I went public and I stood up and I let people know, I let the church know, Jesus has changed my life. And I have put my trust in him. And if that's true for you, whether you're in Elliott Hall or you're here in the sanctuary, I want to ask, would you be willing to stand right now? If that's true for you, would you just stand where you are so that we can celebrate with you this Easter? Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we thank you that you are still in the business of bringing dead stuff to life. 
We thank you for your forgiveness, which washes us clean. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you will come for us and redeem us and rescue us no matter our past, no matter our baggage. And you long to lead us into newness of life and forgiveness and joy. And I pray, God, on this Easter Resurrection Sunday that we would find our hope and our truest, fullest identity in trusting you and what you did for us 2,000 years ago. All this we pray in Jesus' name, even as we lift high his cross. And everybody said, amen. Amen.